0: Welcome into the Hazard Ground podcast. Thank you for joining us each and every week. Hope everybody is doing okay these days as the new year is off to a great start. Uh, Approaching our 100th episode for the Hazard Ground. Very excited. Also approaching our two-year anniversary since we've started. So uh, some great things happening here going forward on the podcast. We just appreciate the support from you guys. Also, our sponsors appreciate the support. Go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the sponsors tab. Support all the sponsors that support this podcast to help us Keep getting great guests, telling great stories, and furthermore, helping out the veterans community all over America. Remind you guys to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep up with what's going on on this show, upcoming guests and features and everything that we have going on. And finally, a reminder to leave a rating and a review on iTunes for us. Doesn't have to be a lengthy review, just something that you like or don't like about the podcast. Let us know what's going on. The reviews give us feedback, but they also help grow the podcast. The more reviews we get, the more people that are checking out the podcast and, of course, the more we're telling these great stories from American heroes all over the country. Now on to this week's episode. This week's guest, one of our more interesting military guests, as her job is not common from anything that we've seen. She is a retired Air Force staff sergeant and a combat camera photographer. Uh, she has two books out, including one called Shooter Combat from Behind the Camera, which is a photography book, and a second book, a photojournalist field guide in the trenches with combat photographer Stacy Pearsall and she is also a former military photographer of the year. It is Stacy Pearsall here on the Hazard Ground podcast. Stacy, welcome. Thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks so much for having me. appreciate it.
0: All right, so a combat photographer. Uh, we have actually interviewed before war photographers, but people who weren't military. So I'm curious to find out the differences and what, you know, actually happens. But you know, you were someone who was injured in Iraq uh, during your deployment and suffered the, the physical wounds, but the PTSD, also all that stuff. But we always start at the beginning because I'm curious how you got to become a combat photographer. It's not something usually people sign up for the military for.
1: I come from a long line of military, my family, and I knew I wanted to do something in the arts within the service. And uh, there's like graphics design. I could be a broadcaster or a photographer. So I um, ended up choosing photography Um I had taken some camera classes when I was in high school, but that's about it. So I went uh, and went to Defense Information School. They taught me basically the fundamentals. And at the time, it was film and slide film and, and basic photography fundamentals. From there, I actually went into the intelligence side of the house and worked at the U.S. command. Then I went, had a follow-on to the analysis center in England. And I knew, I knew, I knew always that I wanted to be a combat photographer once I found out about it and uniquely combat time you had to have retention. So at least four years of service and then another four years on another enlistment, you had to look really good on paper. So all your evaluation reports had to be pristine and not to mention actually be decent behind the camera. Now I had all of those first parts, but photographically I really just was not all that great. (laughs) And, um, (laughs) I put an application in for the one position that had opened up because in combat camera, people like to homestead and, and they stay until they die or retire. And in this case, somebody had retired, so position opened up. I put my hat in the ring, and honestly, I felt like I had a snowball's chance in hell because there were so many other talented and experienced photographers also vying for that position Um as would have it. I scored the, scored the job and um, hadn't looked back after that. I spent the rest of my career in combat camera.
0: But, I mean, it's weird when you say, I wanted to do something arts in the military, because typically those two fields don't mesh. Like, yes, I know we have it both in the Army and the Air Force. We have, you know, uh, broadcasters, and we, ha- we even have the band. You know, I mean, the Air Force has that as well. But those aren't things that people usually join the military specifically for. So how did you get to, to both of those together?
1: Well, honestly, it's every picture that we see from, from every major conflict we are, we are the United States involved in. We have had combat photographers on the front lines and and those images and those video we see, um, a lot, whether it's in our history books or school books or documentaries that we, that we watch on television. And, um, I knew that those had to be sourced from somewhere and that happens to be from combat photographers. So I, I definitely think that there has been a long history of art in the military.
0: Yeah, just uh, again, you know, I'm, I'm trying to, um, a lot of people who want to be photographers, there's a much easier route than the military per se. So I think it's great that you uh, were able to find both that you love. So um, once you get to this job, kind of time frame. where are we? Had 9-11 happened yet? I mean, when did you enlist? Give me the whole mm-hmm. background.
1: Well, the position opened up in the spring of 2001. I okay. applied and was accepted in July of 01. 9-11 happened. My report in a later than date was January 02. Mm-hmm. So between the time I was accepted and the time I actually reported, mm-hmm. a lot happened. And I came into a unit that was already deployed on multiple fronts. Now, from... did
0: you did you think that when you were getting in, though, you, you talked about just a moment ago through every conflict in history. When you signed up, there was no conflict. So... Were you anticipating, hoping there was like going to be one, or what did you think you were going to be doing as a combat cameraman with no war going on?
1: Well, I think that's kind of a, 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 um, a misunderstanding because combat photographers cover more than just war. We actually go to the front lines of humanitarian crises, so the okay. earthquake in Pakistan, the um, the Hurricane Katrina uh, cleanup. Here. that was part of um, our mission um and then we go to places that people don't necessarily know we're involved in um or we have maybe a low profile or we're helping other countries so we go and document a un mission for instance um there are things going on around the world 24 7 that not not every american is privy to
0: that's uh, that's incredible i didn't know that uh, that they were involved in all that um all right. So you mentioned nine eleven happens. You're with a unit that's quickly going out the door. Do you go with them? How quickly do you get into a a literal combat scenario?
1: Luckily, the, the, the combat camera unit has been around a long time, and they know that you have to really train to. To stay alive, because ultimately, once once you're out there, it's your job to go out there, find the story, and that means by any means necessary and with any unit possible. So, um, I had to get into combat camera and get certified on a number of things, not just photographically, satellite systems, computer systems, but also talking Army language, talking Marines right. how to how to do coordination and um, how to move around the battle space how to stay alive. So I learned a lot of tactics um, from close quarters, combat to tactical driving courses. All of that stuff was part of that training. Then only then after I was certified, did they actually start putting me through training scenarios that were simulated combat. Of course, my mentors always told me you can't simulate combat for real because you never really know what it's like until you're in it.
0: I, I, I guess the only thing I'm wondering, and maybe we'll touch on this a little bit more when we get into some of the things that happened to you, but you know, you <laughs> know, How do you know when to put down the camera and pick up the gun?
1: That's a good question. And one I often ask my mentors prior to going to war, and they always came back with "It's wholly individual. It's called that pucker factor. Um, And and frankly, the one thing I always had to remind myself was that um, there are infantrymen, and the infantryman's job is to engage the enemy. My job is to photograph that engagement and it, it can be really difficult to know what that fine line is, but I I learned right away what my threshold was.
0: What's your threshold?
1: I I could tell you I can count on um, one hand how many times I actually engaged the enemy in battle.
0: Okay. Um, and, and I just, it's funny that you say that because I, I remember going through um, rules of engagement classes prior to my first deployment and you know, th- there was a lawyer who stood up there and he created this scenario. Just imagine you see somebody in, you know, Arab garb and he's got an AK 47 slung over his shoulder. And you're staring at him down a dark alleyway. Are you pointing your gun at him? He says, well, imagine now he takes that gun off his shoulder and holds it in his hand. Do you point the gun at him now? Now imagine he turns around and stops and looks at you with the gun in his hand. Do you point it at him now? Now he raises the gun up, you know, for, and you talk about the escalation and that threshold for everybody starts to be a little bit different. Um, Is it similar to the same kind of thing for you? Was it, was it that sort of escalation when you watch things unfold?
1: I believe that I think uniquely from i um, having attended the very training you're talking about. Um, it was different as a, as a photographer, I think because my threshold changed when I put the camera to my face and I equated a lot to when we watch the Kentucky Derby or any major horse race, the horse has blinders on them and that those blinders keep them from um, spooking at things around them, left or right. The camera is that same thing for me. It's a set of blinders. So it, it, reduces the battle space from 180 degrees of my vision to basically that that 24 to 70 millimeters that's down <laughs> the barrel of my lens
0: wow that is uh that's incredible okay so you get certified um how quickly do you end up overseas
1: i i would oh gosh that's a good question i have to take it back um Let's see. I did a number of training deployments that first year in O2, got aerial combat certified, and then I had my first uh, deployment to Iraq in the spring of O three.
0: All right. So it had just kicked off then at that point in time. I mean, March 2003 is when it started, so you were there fairly, fairly early on.
1: Right. I was not in the thick of it. At the time, at that time, what I was doing was they were still, they being my unit, were, were still sort of trying to get my feet wet uh, with deployments and getting, air, you know, I had just gotten aerial qualified. So they were trying to get some hours on me in combat. And I, what I would do is go from Germany down to Baghdad and back and um, doing resupply missions and taking wounded out of Iraq.
0: Were you chomping at the bit, so to speak, going, when am I going to get in the fight here? When am I going going to get to start photographing real stuff?
1: I th- I think yeah I think for anybody who trains enough uh, wants to actually put practice uh, um, into reality and um, I wouldn't say that I was really anxious to to get in the fight like that I was I was anxious to do my part because everyone in my unit had deployed already and um, had combat experience not that I was pitting my experience against theirs but you know, it, it was my time to go and I was I was ready to do it. And um, hopefully I could live up to the expectations of my mentors. And that's really what I was concerned about.
0: So when does you actually get to a position where you are, your daily mission is outside the wire and photographing combat as you see it happen?
1: I went on my first ground deployment in the fall of 2003 and, and through the winter. So it was just a matter of months from the time I was doing the, the resupply missions to the time that I was actually on the ground.
0: All right. So take me through your first couple of days there. What do you remember? What are you seeing? Obviously we know what your mission is, but I mean, what kind of view are you attached to a unit? Do you just kind of go out where it happens? How does the whole thing unfold on a day-to-day basis for you?
1: My unit was based out of Camp Sather at the Baghdad international yep, airport. No well. Um, but we were, our whole ARR was the Baghdad region. So one, no mission was the same as the next, honestly, I would be assigned to um, a ranger unit going out to, to catch what we had. still still were looking for the face cards. So we would go out in these operations, looking for them, clearing houses, things like that. And then, you know, a day or two later, I'd be out with a civil affairs unit, rebuilding a school and, and taking pictures of, you know, a grand opening of a school. So, um, it really ran the gamut of what I was documenting and who I was going with, mainly Army. I would say 90% of my operations were done with the Army. Well, actually more like 95.
0: Okay. Um, let me ask you sort of a, a, a question. I'm sure you've been a, approached before, but I'm always curious from a female perspective. You know, when you say you go with Ranger units, one, you know, I, I, I would tend to think, Oh, well, I know, that those guys are very laser focused and the last thing they want is something to detract uh you know from their focus and, and be a distraction to them when on their mission when you got to some of these high level elite units like that did you get a sense that they almost didn't want you there and that all of a sudden they had to worry about you because you were female and you know did they know what your capabilities were things like did you ever run into that
1: I all gender aside, I, I would argue that anybody who's an outsider going into a unit like that sure. is probably frowned upon, right. no matter no matter one's gender. So it's hard to differentiate. Did they did they not like me because I was Air Force? Did they not like <laughs> me because I was a photographer and I had a camera? Did they not like me because I was a woman and they're all that? I mean, one would argue that all of those things were against me. Um, I, I would say that in their defense, they all acted very, very professional. And, and at the end of the day, they had a job to do. I had mine. I did not want to be a risk factor, uh, right? On their operations, and made sure that I trained with them and trained hard, and um, and I never asked for respect, nor did I demand it. I always, I always went set about earning it, and if that meant doing low level operations first to show that I could actually keep up, um, then that's what I did.
0: Wow, that's I mean, that's incredible. Um, I, I just I tip my cap to you because there's there's a lot of people who wouldn't be and as you said gender aside there's a lot of people who would be uncomfortable going with a ranger unit they're just because they're not a ranger you know and and they could feel that sort of sideways eye looking at them because that tab means everything to those guys and if you don't have it well they 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 look at you differently so the fact that you're able to to, you know to handle yourself and, and earn their respect I think was just you know something incredible and a tip to the cap to you all right so um take me through some in that first deployment some of the more memorable things Either that you shot or that you didn't get, because I'm always curious. Uh, I, I feel like you would remember the things you missed more than the things that you didn't.
1: Mm. Well, i I was assigned to photograph uh, a congressional tour. Um, that I was I was out there photographing a bunch of women congressmen who were who were in Baghdad. Um, looking specifically at the needs of women Iraqis, and we we toured this hospital for women. These and were we American would... women
0: congressmen? I'm sorry to cut you off, but they were American women congressmen? Or... That's correct. Okay, yeah, right.
1: they, that's correct. And, and specifically that um, culturally male doctors couldn't treat women doctors or women patients, and then the women doctors that could actually care for the women had to go home at night to care for their families. It was cultural. So a lot of women would perish uh, or pass away in the middle of the night or have premature babies. They didn't have electricity to run the incubators, all these things we were discussing. But um, so I took a bunch of photographs for that. Those images ended up changing. Um, how we handled women's health care in Baghdad or wow. how the, the Iraqis did, um, which was amazing. And then we ended that tour at the El Rashid Hotel, which is pretty popular, was popular at the time. Um, and I have this picture um, someone took, I think it was one of the congresswomen, took of me from the rooftop of the El Rashid Hotel. And the very next day it had been bombed. I don't know if you remember that, but uh-huh, um, that, yes. that stuck in my mind Had, it, had at that very moment. If it could have been 24 hours later, um, it would have been a whole different experience.
0: That's amazing. I, I, I mean, when you think back to the way policy changed because of the pictures you took, how does that make mm-hmm. you feel?
1: Well, then it, that makes me feel like I did my job. I, I think the whole point is, you know, a, a gun is a, is a weapon, but my camera is also a very powerful weapon, and I tried not to forget that.
0: Interesting. Okay, Um, so how does that first deployment end and and, uh, what else sticks out about it to you? Any other missions that you went on that were really kind of uh, memorable for you?
1: I was with the Civil Affairs Unit, um, a National Guard unit out of New York, and we they had been rebuilding this elementary school uh, that where Saddam's wife used to teach. And it was a bath party command post, which got leveled during the shock and awe campaign. They worked really hard to rebuild it everything was great we finally went for the grand opening and um i was in the colonel's vehicle which meant we were the first um when we got to the location but as we were leaving it was kind of a really narrow street so we did a a a three-point turn turned around and we were the last vehicle and we got hit by an ied um and that was one of the probably last operations i went on on that on that deployment um when when
0: you get hit by the ied i mean did you know what happened
1: Oh God. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I think a bomb's a bomb. Um, -hmm. uh, you know, I had been used to small arms fire and RPGs and things like that, but that was my first IED experience. Pretty interesting. Um, yeah. And then being air force with army, it was, they were, we were still trying to work out this sort of joint marriage, how it was going to work. And I, I really, didn't get seen by an army medic or a doctor and it was hours later that I finally got to see an air force flight surgeon they were like well it looks like you ruptured your eardrum here's some motrin go about your business and i was back out on operation the next day with a different army unit so um you know it really was later that i found out i had a traumatic brain injury from that particular exposure and um that that was really uh something that had a lasting issue and was eventually one of the catalysts for my medical retirement.
0: When, when, I mean, does that day play back more than any other day to you for, for any given reason?
1: Oh, um, well, uh, I think it's significant, uh, in my mind or, or in my, you know, Rolodex of memories only because it had a lasting effect on me.
0: Sure. Um, But
1: it's one of so many.
0: (laughs) Well, and I wonder, because obviously, you know, that's not the end of your career at this point in time. You continue to go out and do more. So um, kind of take me through what happens. I mean, your deployments are how long? I mean, Air Force deployments are typically shorter, right? So you were only there for what, four, six months, whatever it was? Uh,
1: That particular deployment was uh, six months. Um, I've had other deployments that were shorter that were four months.
0: Okay. So after that deployment ends, what's the cycle like now? How quickly do you get back?
1: Well, I, I get home, goodness, and then I, I get accepted into the military photojournalism program at Syracuse, so I have 10 months off to get some higher learning. And I actually wore civilian clothes for those 10 months. and nice. went to Yeah, I went to school alongside undergrads for journalism. And when it came time for me to graduate, I volunteered to go back to combat camera. Okay. And once I reported back to my unit, I went to the Horn of Africa in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. And we were uh, out in Ethiopia, Eritrea, Djibouti, um, Uganda, Kenya. Basically, it was a humanitarian mission on one hand, but also because we were supporting Enduring Freedom, the idea was to root out terrorist camps.
0: Did you feel like you were too far away from the action? Did you feel like there wasn't really anything going on there?
1: I definitely. Ha, ha, I wish I had been in Afghanistan supporting OEF. However, right. um, this particular mission in the Horn of Africa was a new one, and they and they being the commanders wanted to have stand up a combat camera team, a contingent out there, and they chose to send me to help establish that. Uh, and um, I felt honored that they they had that kind of faith in my ability to, to go out and stand the unit up. So I knew it was important. Um, wasn't, wasn't what I would call what I wanted to do at the time, sure, but there's yeah. a reason for everything and, and and a reason why they commanded me to go. So
0: when that deployment, I mean, does anything significant happen on that deployment that you can remember?
1: I did a lot of operations with the Marine Corps helicopter folks. And, um, I, I flew a lot of missions and, just a week after I redeployed home, the unit that I was flying a lot with, they had a mid-air collision and both crashed off the cor- off the Horn of Africa and only one survived. And and that particular uh, pilot, um, she and I used to run a whole lot together. So um, that was pretty significant. Um, and it, it's crazy to think that you're in a place that's, it's not – it's considered – A a combat zone um, because of, you know, being on on the border of Somalia and um, in such close proximity with terrorist camps. But um, uh, you couldn't imagine anything like that tragically happening without being under fire. You know what I mean? So it's it's kind of sad. It's sad that it happened that way and and devastated that it was such a tragic loss. But, um, you know, it's war.
0: So this is the second time now where you you, you had what I guess you'd call it a narrow miss, if you will. Um, you know, you just mentioned the hotel back in Iraq and now the helicopter crash. Are you starting to feel like at this point in time that, you know, um, hey, I, I don't know how many more narrow misses I can have?
1: You know, honestly, I, I didn't even think of it that way at the time. I, I guess I knew that, you know, I knew that my job with my job came risk and and. I didn't look at it like, wow, I really skirted that one. Um, I just, I don't know. I just went about my job. I didn't, I didn't think about that. And I I, I think that was sort of my mantra anyway, that every morning I got up, I, I would say, okay, today, today's the day I die, moving on. You know, if, if you sit there and fixate on all the things that could have happened, then you're not in the moment. And And for me, it was important to be in the moment.
0: After that deployment ends, what's next?
1: I come home and I get married <laughs> uh, uh, and then I spend my honeymoon evacuating Americans from Lebanon, the bombing in lebanon oh wow yeah, um, and then I come home from that and i I volunteer to take an earlier or an earlier deployment back to iraq
0: um just out of curiosity when you say you you, you weren't honeymooning in Lebanon, were you <laughs> <laughs> oh wait! So you okay? I I thought maybe you got called to go there. So you actually were honeymooning in Lebanon. No, 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 no. Oh,
1: okay. I, I was supposed, you know, I had uh, I had my honeymoon, which was like a weekend, and I came back from that, and I went to, and I deployed to Lebanon. Okay,
0: gotcha. I'm like, you know, when you said that, I was just curious if there was a, just by chance, you know, we're honeymooning in Lebanon. I mean, hey, people are honeymooning in stranger places, so it wouldn't no. uh, it wouldn't have uh, surprised me all that much. But I right, would have so, loved that. Can't right? afford it. Yeah, I know. Um, so you get back to Iraq now and what, what year are we when you get back to this deployment?
1: I, I left for Kuwait, uh, just after Christmas or was it at Christmas? Something like that. Um, I remember spending my birthday in Kuwait on my way into Iraq and that was January 15th. So I can't remember precisely. That's Oh seven. By okay. The way. Um, and so, yeah. ultimately,
0: this is the deployment that you get injured on. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, you're back in the combat camera realm, though. But 2007 Iraq is a much different place than it was in 2003. Um, the the insurgency it's at its height. You know, we're we're in the middle of the surge, or the surge is just beginning. Um, when you get back there, how dynamically different is the environment overall as you perceive it?
1: Well, everything is different. I, everything from our technology to the armor we're wearing to the tactics we're using, um, everything has evolved. So it's it's. I had a lot of um, adaptation <laughs> to get used to. Not only that, but um, instead of being sort of um, attached to a different unit every day, I was going to be at forward operating base Warhorse with the first calf and be, instead of going from different numbered units, I would be with one with the gray wolf the whole time and, and out with different companies. So my AOR was, um, the Diala province. And um, the, the good thing was I, I had a lot of relationships to build, but once those relationships were built, they were lasting and I could go and, and know people by, um, by their first and last names and know their children and their wives. Like they weren't strangers to me anymore. I, I, that was a, a luxury I didn't have prior.
0: And just for those non-military listening, Diyala Province, uh, not far from Baghdad, about thirty-five minutes north, uh, a little bit more northeast of Baghdad. So it's uh, you're, you're close, but you're not, you know, uh, uh, right near the city. Now, in, in working there, um, day-to-day operations, those guys are going out and knocking on doors and looking for bad guys. Is that kind of what you were doing along with them?
1: Yes. Um, I okay, so you mentioned the search earlier, which is really significant to. The, the story of Bakuba. Um, everything that they were doing down in Baghdad was working really, really well. Uh, it was fleshing out all of um, the sort of foreign fighters and, and what we now know as ISIS. And they moved into Bakuba and, and a smaller town of Bakuba called Baritz, particularly. And it was known as sort of the ISIS capital of Iraq. And mm-hmm. um, the Grey Wolf was in charge of trying to um gain ground in, in those particular cities it was sad because um we had con- basically took control of that of that town but after the surge everything started going into hell in a handbasket quickly and uh the Iraqis who we had transitioned power over to had lost everything that we had gained and and now it was it was um, an effort to try and regain that ground again and uh and it was very dynamic fighting every every day was um very close proximity um every day there was casualties it was um one for the history books and, and frankly there was a book written about it called the battle uh, the battle for bakuba um it was fighting on a scale that i had n- never been part of before and um definitely an experience i'll never forget
0: Let's take the photography side first before we take the military side. Um, on a day-to-day operation, what sort of pictures are you getting? What, what are you seeing through your lens and, and um, some of the more memorable photos that you've taken?
1: You know, uh, people would expect that a combat photographer would capture bullets flying and bombs, and naturally I did, but I, I think over time as I grew and matured um, as a photographer as a journalist as I guess a woman maybe um I wanted to look at the war from a more human experience and and instead of just focusing literally and figuratively on the bullets in the blood I wanted to look at the relationships in the humanity and a lot of my pictures are focused on the interpersonal relationships and and the dynamic of say a small squad or um our commander and his troops. Uh, My pictures um, are all about a quiet, a lot of quiet moments. Um, I have a picture of a soldier who took a ricocheted bullet uh, to the groin and it was luckily just kind of skimmed off his most important parts. He's sitting there on a cot, smoking a cigarette back at um, his cop. And um, it's that moment where he's like sort of, counting his blessings or maybe, you know, recounting his life. I don't know, but. He was probably
0: counting literally, you know, all of his stuff to make sure it was there at that point. That's what I would be doing at least.
1: <laughs> right. It's those sort of introspective moments that I liked to look at. And I have a photograph of a unit there. Um, uh, the squad lost uh, one of their soldiers. He was shot in, um, in the head while standing uh, watch. And it had just happened. Um, a few hours prior to me taking this picture and they're standing just adjacent to the space where it happened and their body language says it all. And, and they had to continue to work in the very spot that they lost their, you know, best friend. And I think that that really sums up what war is like. It's, um, it's not how it's portrayed in Hollywood. Um, it's not, it's not super sexy <laughs> with, you know, flashing lights and, and, color and, you know, bravado. It, it is those things, but on a, on a different context. And I think there's no time for um, grieving. There's no time for tears. And I, I think it's the it's always those verge of tears where my pictures lived.
0: It's an interesting place. Uh, I and mean, it's funny how you say the, the, you know, the humane side of war, which in and of itself is a you know, uh, it's an oxymoron, right? Cause war in and of itself lacks humanity. I mean, it's the idea of wars to, to take out humanity. And so, uh, I think back to my experience. And when you talk about the interpersonal relationships, the Iraqis that I worked with every single day, you know, the, the laughs and the smiles and the jokes, those things, even though the people ask me about my combat experience. And the first thing I go to is bullets and bombs and everything else, much like, you know, naturally a lot of us would, but when you start to peel back the layers a little bit, as you said, you know it's those relationships, the guys that I work with and I train with every single day that when I talk about those, you know my face really lights up you know I, I my, the the tone of my voice picks up because it's those experiences um, where you form the bonds that that really make us different than everybody else who doesn't wear a uniform, right yeah all right, so um as you're going through this on a day-to-day basis, uh, from a military standpoint, do you start to feel like, uh, you know, maybe it's it's too much, and and there's you know the odds are stacked against you. I mean, how many more times can you go out looking for bad guys before something bad happens to you? Do you start to get that feeling at all?
1: I didn't have enough time to to worry about that. Frankly, sure. uh, I was just concerned about getting myself and my battle buddy through every mission and not putting any of the infantrymen at risk. You know, I, I didn't want to be, um, what, what slowed them down or, um, what, what hindered a mission. You know, I focused solely on getting my job done and, and not, not inhibiting them from doing theirs. And, um, frankly, I I wasn't there counting the amount of, um, you know, firefights we got in or anything like that. I was, you know, solely focused on making sure that the images I captured truly told the story so that the battlefield commanders knew what the hell was going on. And, the, and more, more than that, that the images I, I captured showed what kind of conditions these soldiers were operating in so that the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, and the President knew, knew what kind of toll they were going through, and hopefully that those images would help better inform their decision making.
0: Do you, in in that mindset, were you trying to find that that picture that would relay that, or is that just something that came about as a, as a product of everyday work?
1: I I think that I um, I used my own experiences and what I was feeling in those moments to help me to help guide how i was going to photograph things and what exactly i was photographing you know in journalism school i think the biggest thing that they used to tell me was to take myself out of it to remain as a fly on the wall and capture it as i see it the the problem with that is that you never if you if you've had this barrier between yourself and what's happening then you re, re, then you really don't know what the hell is happening and the thing about making connections with people is that you can't ask them to connect to you and not do the same Sure, and not reciprocate yeah. because then all you're ever getting is this this imaginary wall between you and them. For me, my work was very, very intimate and and emotionally connected and and informative because I dropped that barrier and I and I and I wore my experience on my sleeve, but <laughs> instead of on my sleeve, through my pictures.
0: Also, I would imagine that understanding their tactics would allow you to kind of anticipate where to shoot. Am I wrong in that?
1: No, I think that was absolutely a key part is, is understanding where they're going to go, how things are going to go and to put myself in the position to be there in the moment. And, um, you know, a lot of that can come with risk too. Uh, I, uh, I have a picture of a soldier who's looking out from a rooftop after clearing a house. We were in the middle of a firefight. And instead of going in the house with the squad, I stayed out in the middle of the road unprotected. And again, with my camera to my face, blind like a jackass, because um, <laughs> I, I knew this picture was going to happen. But I, I thought, okay, it's risk and reward. If I know this is going to happen, it's going to be a beautiful picture. Um, if we're in the middle of a sandstorm, I know he's going to be standing there looking out the window. It would be perfect. So I, I felt like it was worth it.
0: Tell me about the day um, that you got injured. I mean, you've already been hit with an IED. You've already experienced small arms fire. Uh, was that just a normal day when you got up? Was it a normal mission? Was anything different about it?
1: Well, I, I would say that my that, – that hit back in um, – it was in February of o4 that IED. Um, that hit left my cervical spine pretty traumatized already. And and after wearing 60 to 80 pounds of gear every day in Bakuba, um, my neck was – feeling pretty, pretty bad to begin with. And then I got hit by another improvised explosive device um, and that re-injured my neck injury. And then um, we were in the middle of a firefight and I went to go help a soldier who'd been um, hit with shrapnel and came off my feet and hit the very part of my neck that I had injured in those two IEDs. And uh, that was it. I mean, it's nothing super sexy. You know, um, it's just what happened over time. And, um, that was the end of my career.
0: When you find it, when did the doctors tell you that this is the end of your career and that you can't do this anymore? And what is your initial reaction?
1: (laughs) Just like after I got hit by both the other IEDs, I, I tried to go back out on operation and just continue working and ignore it. Um, i The problem was uh, the nerve damage was so significant that I could barely grip my camera or raise my arm over. you know, I couldn't hardly lift my arm at all with because my my arm was numb, but every time I went to lift my arm, it was like very, very painful, and i I tried to ignore it as best I could. Now, my battle buddy who I'd mentioned previous, she'd been shot by a sniper, and um she had surgery and came back to warhorse to recover. And one morning I could barely sit up because my, my neck was in such pain. And she's like, that's it. I'm taking you. I'm taking you over to the doctor with me. And I was like, I don't want to go. Cause I knew, I knew, I knew it was bad. So reluctantly she dragged me over there and the doctor did an X-ray and he's like, you gotta go to blood. And I was like, I knew it. Mm -hmm. So I, I was on a helicopter. Um, just like 45 minutes later, and then I was in uh, at the hospital in Belad. They did um, a uh, uh, they did a scan, and they were like, "All right, you're going to Germany for surgery." And I was like, "What? <laughs> no!" That quick, it happens that quick. Yeah. It happens that quick, and and the thing was, I was really mad. I did not want to go to Germany. I said no to surgery. I said no to going to Germany. I said, I came into this country on my own two feet. I'm going to leave on my two feet and on my own terms. And I said, I'm going to go home to Charleston, and I'm going to go home on the next rotator. If you won't let me go back to, to my FOB, I'm going back on my own. And that's what I did.
0: So wait, how did, how did you make that happen?
1: Um, I talked to this colonel. <laughs> uh, His name was Colonel Rattery and Valod, Air Force Colonel, and I said, and that's what I told him. I I was like, listen, if you want to do me any favors, if I have any choice, give me some morphine and let me go home on my own terms. And 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 he said he was okay with that. The doctors reluctantly agreed, and that's what happened.
0: So they allowed you to stay the rest of you, but you didn't go out on any more missions, obviously, because you said you couldn't lift your camera, right? So no,
1: they they did not allow me to go back to my FOB, and okay. they did not allow me to stay in country any longer. I was out on the next rotator.
0: Oh, the very next. Okay, I see what you're saying. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So you get back to the United States. Um, do Do you feel at this point your career is over, or do you officially no. know that, or you just thought you were no. going to get surgery and get back in it?
1: <laughs> I, I guess I I I being being so resilient having recovered a couple times before thought that I could get back to, um, at least some sort of operable, um, function. And I spent 18 months in recovery. Um, and I worked really, really hard in rehab. And after, and after 18 months, the doctor's like, dude, you're not going to He didn't say dude, that's just me. <laughs> um, he's like, you're not going to spontaneously get better. Sorry. So we need to actually have a real, hard conversation about what you see happening i'm like i said i'm not ready to give up yet i didn't come this far to just throw the towel and that's not who i am he's like well let's put you on a temporary retirement and give you a little bit more time and and we'll reevaluate you in a year and that's what they did and then i went through all of that hiatus and 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 even more rehabilitation only to be told it it just wasn't going to be so I had to go to a medical board and get medically retired, which was not what I wanted.
0: Feelings, reactions, thoughts when you get the final verdict i angry
1: was angry. I was devastated. I think what was most disheartening was I love what I did, and I loved being in the military i I identified wholeheartedly with being a combat photographer and being told I couldn't lift being told I couldn't be in the military anymore hurt being told I couldn't be a photographer anymore was terrible and then to and then to just have I feel like everybody turned their back on me in the moment I needed them most really just blew to smithereens the ideology I had in my head about my military family because the some of my treatments, I had to have a driver, and my husband was deployed. So I expected my unit to come and pick me up, take me to my appointment. Then I would be put under anesthesia and then be to have my procedure and then be brought out and be driven home. That's what family does. But instead, they just wouldn't show up, and I'd have to take a taxi. What? This was my experience at the end. I was bitter and angry and I felt abandoned and, um, it was just awful. And that's, and that's the bitter seed that was planted when I left the service. And it took me a lot of years to move past that.
0: Did you ever reach out to anybody and ask them why? Did you ever reach out to and try to get some concrete? Why'd you guys leave? Why there wasn't anybody there? Do you, do you have any resolution to that?
1: No, no. And, and I honestly, they, I don't know what they were going through and in, in their And in, in, at that point in their lives, I, I sometimes look at like, when you're looking at injuries, if you were to look at me at the time, I looked perfectly fine. Because how do you, how do you, a, a spinal trauma is not outward. Right. And, and so in the back of my mind, I wondered, were they thinking, was I faking it? And they were like, ah, and to hell with her. She, she didn't deal with her and her shit on her own. You know what I mean? Like, um, sure, and, yeah. and you know, what the thing was, I wasn't doing it myself any favors either. I wasn't telling them I was in pain. I was hiding it. I was tamping it way down um, because I, I all I wanted to do was get back to work. And I didn't want to give them any reason not to let me work. And um, I would just sit there and suffer in silence. Moreover, I didn't tell them anything that happened to me during the battle for Bakuba. I didn't tell them about my battle buddy getting shot. I didn't tell them about losing a lot of my friends. Um, Nor did I tell them about how I earned a bronze star. I I refused to let anybody attend my bronze star medal um, ceremony. I had it done within closed doors. Um, Why? And I I just I felt like I was unworthy. For one, Um, my friends who. Um, who died? They were the ones who were the heroes. and to be awarded a bronze star for having what just just done my job and surviving it, that seemed really unfair. Um, and, I, and I felt like no matter how much I did, no matter how, what I did on the battlefield is insignificant compared to what they did. And I just I didn't feel like it was anybody's business, honestly at that point, and I sure. wasn't ready okay. to answer the questions that I knew were coming after.
0: Which, why'd you get it? What'd you do? Kind of deal, right?
1: Yeah, what was what was that like? You know, yeah. holding h- holding your friend while he's dying. What was that like? You know, I don't, I wasn't ready for any of that.
0: So w- w- when you say your friends, are you talking about fellow combat cameramen? Or are you talking about people within the unit that you were attached to?
1: I'm talking about the infantry units I was with.
0: Okay. So you had developed a relationship with these folks enough yeah. to call them friends. Because um, obviously you're with them every day. Um yep when you think back to those experiences in those days, um, is it still a dark time for you?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's easier for me to talk about now as I never talked, you know, I, I refuse to talk about it at any length back then. And I may, I'm actually able to do that more now than I was before. Um, yeah, it's difficult. I I had the 10 year uh, reunion with uh, my army, those army units um, back at at last year. And it was, it was interesting to see uh, everyone again and to see where they're at and how they're coping. And um, during the Veterans Portrait Project, I've, I've been able to um, uh, re-photograph them, but on our own terms um, and just, and have a little bit more in-depth talk. And, And it's nice to know that that I'm not alone in how I feel or what I feel or how I've been coping. Um, it's, it was a traumatic experience for a lot of us. And, um, I know that I, I can always trust them to be able to call them when I need them.
0: Do you have any photographs of those people who died that you stay with you?
1: Yes. Um, there, it, it, <sighs> It's tough um, for me as a combat photographer. I'd never realized um, or I learned early on in the deployment how significant past past informational my pictures were um, my the pictures that I took were used by the families as remembrances, so so to speak, um, memorials of their loved ones. And, mm-hmm. and to me, they th- those pictures are the most significant, most important they, they aren't the most beautiful, they aren't award-winning images, but they mean the most to so many, um, and, and those are the most important.
0: As far as the loss is concerned, um, you know, you got closure uh, as far as the way you had to leave the air force and everything else. Uh, where are you on closure with the loss of your friends?
1: I I actually feel really good about how far um, that as far as that's concerned for a number of years actually until the reunion um, which was the 10-year reunion I had never um, talked to the um, the widows of my friends and um, I mean I gave them the pictures I gave the pictures to the family through other soldiers to give to them and and I I and i instructed the soldiers not to tell them that i was a woman um why or or to tell them my name why yeah i think um, as a wife of a fellow service member in my in my twisted sensibilities at the time i did not want the wives to think that there was another woman there
0: gotcha okay that's fair um, i mean that's fair I, listen I, I i empathize with you i, I can get that
1: yeah, I mean, I I put myself in their shoes for a minute. Like, how would I feel about that? Would it be strange? Would there, you know, what was a woman doing there? That's weird. And you know, like your mind goes to weird places in grief. Yes. And and I didn't want anybody to misconstrue that. And it took ten years for me to get get enough um, courage to actually talk to them. And it was it was healing. I think that that um. I greatly appreciate them opening their hearts to me that way and um, allowing me to grieve with them.
0: Stacy, how different is it when you photograph death in combat? um, You know, you talked about that kind of uh, dissonance that you have with the subjects that you're photographing that they tell you to in school, at least, you know, doctrinally, they want you not to, you know, be emotionally tied to it because it gives you, you know, objectivity. When you photograph that, And then you have to live through an actual death of somebody you consider a friend. Um, What are the differences? I mean, are there any connections at all in between the death of somebody you don't know and the death of somebody you do know? Or do you just see it as this is combat, this is death, this is what happens?
1: No, I think that I think is a big difference. I've photographed my share of dead bodies, um, you know mutilated bodies and that didn't touch me i i mean i could i've seen hundreds of them sadly but um nothing ever touched me so much as when i had to photograph my friend dying so what you it photographed it experience. as well
0: as as we're through the whole th- i mean how did you how do you get that moment to be cognizant enough to take that picture
1: <laughs> um it's there was okay <laughs> this is a really difficult um Thing to answer because as a combat photographer, you're meant to document everything, regardless of how it touches you emotionally, and and that was the significant part about keeping yourself, you know, as a fly on the wall, kind of emotionally detached. Not, yeah, I guess that's the only way to say it. Um, And. When my friend was okay, so I've had lost multiple friends in multiple operations during that time, but uh, on one particular operation, a friend of mine got shot um, shot in the head, and he was still alive when uh, we fell back to one of the nearest fobs and called in a helicopter. Uh, when we got back to the fob, we were pulling his body from from the the humvee, and I had this obligation, this sense of obligation as a combat photographer. I could hear I could hear, that voice in my head, you better do your job. The job is happening right now. But then the, there was this conflict as a human being, just the basis of emotion saying, this is your friend. Don't you dare put that camera to your face. And I I just sat there and I grappled for a second and then I put the camera to my face and I, I snapped one frame and I felt horrified. It was just not who I was in the deepest core of my being. And I, I felt like I was going to vomit and um, seeing just, it was, it was like, it was like shooting my gun into the heart of my friends from, from that unit. Cause they all looked at me like they had been utterly betrayed. Really? I had, I had betrayed myself and I had betrayed them in an instance. And I betrayed the memory of my friend in that moment too. Um, and they scream, you know, one of the guys was screaming at me, um, oh, words I'm not going to repeat here. And, and I felt like he was justified and, and I felt like he was saying the same things that I would say to myself in that moment. And after my friend was loaded into the helicopter, everyone took cover from the rotor wash and I just stood there and let the rocks pelt me. Cause I felt like that was my penance. Um, and I never made that, I never made that choice again. It was never, it was never, it was never something I did again.
0: Do you have the picture? did you delete it or yeah did anybody ask to see it no that moment um and i know this is tough for you so i'm i'm trying to be delicate with you here uh is that like a major regret for you
1: yeah i think um you know we all have a moral compass and we're we're raised to be upstanding human beings, and, and and that really, really shook me to the core where I stood morally um, and really made me take a step back and, and assess, assess who I was, and that's something I still look back on.
0: Do you feel that, you know, I, part of me, and again, I'm not emotionally in this the way you are, part of me feels like as you said, this is my job. I understand that there are parts of my job that aren't, you know, morally kosher with people, just the same way that you may have seen or we may have seen an enemy combatant throw his hands in the air and say, I surrender and still get shot anyway. Right. I mean, that stuff happens in combat. And and when it happens, there are very few people who raise their hand and go, dude, that's not right. You, you, that's not who we are. And he says, I'm doing my job. That's the enemy. Have you ever tried to look at it from the other side with that moment and go, part of me was right for doing my job?
1: Um, yeah, of course. I, I would like to pardon, give myself a pardon. But honestly, I, I believe that the experiences we had in combat— will stay will stay with us and they mold and they shape us in the years in the years after and I look back at those experiences and the choices I made as some is they have shaped who I am and I don't want to change who I am now because I like to think every morning I wake up and I'm going to live the best life possible the most moral life possible and it's because of those mistakes I've made um I'm not going to go back and undo them, nor am I going to um, relieve myself of the burden I carry because of the decisions I made. Those burdens will always be in the forefront of my mind and steer where I go from here.
0: I understand why you call it a mistake. I, sitting here as an objective observer, have a hard time saying you made a mistake. Might have been an error in judgment in the moment, but I, I, maybe I'm, I'm splitting hairs with the words, but I'm only going off what you say. I have a hard time believing you made a mistake. Yeah. Did you ever bother to ask for forgiveness? Did you get forgiveness from the, from the other guys?
1: Yeah. Yes. Oh God. Yes. A thousand times over. Um, I, they, uh, the major who was the team commander, um, there came up to me afterwards cause that was the same day that my battle buddy had been shot. Um, came up to me af- afterwards and, 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 said, you know, that wasn't your, your fault nor, nor did you deserve to, we didn't. You didn't deserve to get yelled at by us, and you were just doing your job, and we realized that, and we're sorry. And you're part of this team, and and don't let that derail you from the work that you have to do, which is really, really important. And in fact, the whole reason why we were on that mission was pivotal on the work I was doing that day. So, um, if my head wasn't in the game because of what happened, and it was like a domino effect, and and it really required us, you know kind of standing up, acknowledging the moment and, and, and moving on. And, and they said their apologies. I accepted them. uh, and I appreciated that, uh, from them. It's, it's harder to forgive yourself.
0: Sure. Um, do you, is this the main source of what a lot of the, you know, post-traumatic stress you deal with is from?
1: Would say um it's it's a, a fraction of it oh really okay <laughs> i i've had a lot happen to me Sure. Um, yeah that was just one of, of many so
0: how, how much guilt do you carry um or did you carry
1: i ugh, quite a bit i mean i i have let let go of a lot of it okay um over time and um and I think that I I owe a lot of that to the veterans that I've met and have photographed in the years since I left the service. I think the project for me meeting other combat veterans who had their own experiences validates how I feel, but also relieves me of, of that guilt in in many ways, because there are things that we do in in war um, that are in that moment, feel like the right decision, but um, you know, in the years after you would, you, you sit and think of the shoulda, woulda, couldas, and it's there that the guilt lies. And um, I could sit there and, and, and beat myself up over it, which there are a few things that I haven't let go of, um, but there are some that I have.
0: One more question on, on that photo that you took. Um, I, I know you deleted it. Can you still picture it, though?
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: Does it bother you that you could still see it? Yes. I, I, I wonder you know, and again, this is incredibly tough for you, so I'm, I'm, I don't want to push too hard, but I am curious, you know, um, is that something that you still see flashbacks on? Is that something that, that, um, still kind of keeps that memory more alive than you want it?
1: Uh, there are a lot of things that come to me in my dreams. That is one that's pretty consistent. And, um, I don't ever want to forget him or his memory. Um, I think he was an amazing person. I wish I didn't have that in my mind so much because I would like to remember his smile or those moments of our interaction outside of that that horrible moment. Um, But it is what it is. And um, I just have to learn to live with that.
0: I know this is a difficult question to answer, but If it was someone else and he was still alive, what do you think his reaction to you taking the picture would have been?
1: Probably pretty angry. Actually, uh, there was another instance. I took a picture of another soldier. Um, He um, had been – he was actually pronounced dead that day. Um, He was being pulled from a a house IED, and I took a picture of him uh, when – I'm told that it was when he was dead – Um, but he was revived and went home and left the army and somehow, and there, you know, there are pictures I take that, that get released. Some are delayed. Um, you, um, as somebody who knows public affairs knows that, you know, some of those are for our information only it's internal, right. journals and, and some are released. And, um, this series of pictures had been released and I, I'm not really sure how they got out, but some of the, or how they made, got viral on Facebook in the years after. But, uh, this particular soldier's picture got out there, it got circulated and his mother tracked me down by the file name or the caption and then proceeded to send me this page and a half, uh, message through Facebook about how I was a terrible person and how, um, th- that I was a pile of excrement and didn't deserve to breathe or live and, and, um, that her son, her son had died and it was like killing him all over again. And, um, it's like, Jesus, thanks. <laughs> um, that, that happens to be the very day I lost three very, very good friends in that same house-born IED Um, I think I understand grief makes people say really, really bad things. But I was basically the, I was the scapegoat for her grief. And um, that happened to me on more than one occasion.
0: Wow. Um, The scope of this is just getting bigger. I'm I'm Stacey. I'm just kind of, you know, it's, uh, how do you reconcile those moments, the difficult moments with your post-military life. Because I I, I would think, you know, there's some of that you're still carrying with you every day, and it's not like you can go back and atone for the things that you've done. You just have to live with them. Yeah. So, I mean, when when, when those memories come up, is, is there anything you can justify? Is there anything in your head that you tell yourself that, you know, it's just grief or it was, it was that moment. I mean, talk me through kind of what, what the mental process is.
1: Well, first of all, when I got that message from her, I was not in a, in a very good mental state myself. I was still grappling with my own experiences. I was still um, physically unwell. I was mentally disheveled. Um, And so that really took me to the brink and um you know that was a time where i was suicidal and that that was really one of the, na- the nails in the proverbial coffin for me like i was beginning to think about how i was going to do it and and she emotionally pushed me there um, i don't blame her um for venting on me like that i can't not i mean i've come a long way since that time and and to be able to process how she was feeling and why she wrote the words she did um God, pain makes people say very mean things. And um I I can't say that these mean things don't touch me even today because they do. I wouldn't be the human being I am if I wasn't emotionally moved by people's words. Um, particularly when they're addressed about people I care about or myself. And um but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be the person I am if I didn't offer offer forgiveness or understanding. I, and, and honestly, um, I think that's why I, I never, I, I never went through with ending my life because I felt like it would be doing a disservice for those, uh, those we left behind and who couldn't be here. Um, and, and I had to live every day despite the setbacks, you know, that I face from time to time. Um, in spite of all of those experiences
0: to circle back to uh, what we've talked about a couple of times that, you know, uh, emotional dissonance from the subjects that you're photographing in retrospect, do you wish that you didn't have that emotional connection? Do you think it might be easier if you, if you use that approach to not get connected to them?
1: Never. I don't regret that at all. I, I would never have the friends I have had I not let that barrier down. And I have friends um, who survived just like I did, and um, they're friends for a lifetime. I, I would not know them the way I did had I not made that choice.
0: Well, I, I mean, I, I probably probe you with more questions for hours because I, I, you know, the depth of this again gets deeper and deeper. But I, I know it's a it's a it's a tough thing for you to talk about. So let me kind of pivot here for a moment and get to something that has made you feel better, and that's the Veterans Portrait Project. Um, tell people what that's about and. Um, you know why you started it and what it's done for you because I, I think it's pretty phenomenal.
1: Well, in the months after being put on temporary retirement, uh, all I could think about were the things the doctors were telling me I couldn't do anymore. And that was um, stand for prolonged periods of time. I couldn't run anymore. I couldn't ride my horse, which I'm a, a big-time horse rider. Uh, or more importantly, I couldn't take pictures anymore because I wasn't allowed to lift anything over five pounds or more or hold it for a duration of time. And it really, um, you know, obviously emotionally disturbed from my experience and still grappling with the loss of my career, which was, you know, kind of like waking up one day and having your spouse saying, I'm out, you know, um, and not seeing it coming. So I, I, what made it all more difficult was I transitioned my care into the VA hospital where people were two and three times my age. And obviously being a young woman, I am not I'm not gender dominant at the VA hospital and therefore I got a lot of looks and I got a lot of questions like are you bringing your dad or your grandpa to his doctor's appointment you know hey can you tell me where I can find this part of the hospital because they thought I was some sort of hospital worker or you know yeah asking if I was a volunteer and um just feeling very very alienated frustrated overlooked <laughs> um just left behind and that coupled with how my unit left me, I was just really, really bitter. And one day, this elderly gentleman came, and he sat next to me while I was waiting for my neurology appointment. And he was staring at me, and I was getting really pissed. And I was about to tell him where to go. And and instead, I just turned to him, and I asked, I asked if there was something I could do for him. And that was the moment he was looking for, to, to tell me about his military experience. And it turns out the guy was like a World War II hero, <laughs> Oh, wow. He'd survived. Yeah, he'd survived Normandy and um, was captured, was a POW for a while and escaped. He liberated a concentration camp. I was, I was sitting there with my jaw on the floor thinking, okay, I thought he was prejudiced against me, but it turns out I was prejudiced against him. And it made me look at how I'd become so twisted in my mind and, and how I developed this view on the world. It was a negative view when I'd not had before and it made me take a step back and it made me look around the hospital at all the other faces they look different from me yes but we all carried the same sort of baggage <laughs> you know what I mean right. and and my I could my emotions were so clouding my perspective and my reality that when I saw this this man I saw an enemy when really he was one of the greatest generation. In that moment, I wanted to, to redefine veterans and to tell their stories. I wanted to tell his story, but not just his, but everyone else who shared the waiting room with me. So I started bringing my camera to the hospital. And, and, and despite and in spite of the doctor's orders, I started taking pictures. And it was kind of a way for me to um, get off the couch, start living my life and living my life on my terms, and doing what I thought was best for me, and and to have motivation, and putting one foot in front of the other, because that's all I could do at the time. And one picture turned into 80, turned into 300, and um, I set this goal, this crazy goal that I would photograph veterans in every state from which the U.S. recruits, because I thought that would be a lifetime goal, and that was that was the purpose to keep me going for a lifetime. And I've since that time, I've named it the Veterans Portrait Project. I photographed veterans in 29 states. Um, I'm at, my last count was in the spring, and that was 7,500-ish wow. veterans. Uh, I've been exhibited in the National Portrait Gallery, the National Veterans Memorial and Museum, the Women and Military Service Memorial, and I don't have any plans on stopping.
0: Do you remember his name? Mickey Dorsey. The old man, yeah. Yep. Is it, I mean, not to—is he still with us? I mean, the greatest, no, he pa- Okay,
1: no, he passed away. But um, you know, he, he will always live in my memory. So,
0: how much catharsis does the Veterans Portrait Project give you?
1: The Veterans Portrait Project is everything for me. It, again. Those experiences that I had in, in combat are not wholly unique. Many people have had similar experiences, that, that guilt that they carry with them, survival skills, ooh, um, uh and, you know, all of the ramifications in the years after. And, and the veterans I meet, whether they are World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Gulf War, um, all of these experiences, it's like listening to my own story just just, just different generation, and and for me, seeing a World War II veteran um, talking about their experience and saying, "I've had a lifetime of of joy and happiness in spite of these experiences," that to me is something to look forward to. And if it, if that doesn't inspire me, I don't know what the hell else will. It's it's very emotionally cathartic. Some of these folks have never talked about their experience before, and they choose me to talk about it. What I realized. Um, after some time was that this isn't just an emotionally healing tool for me that it's healing for them as well because I had the experiences I had because I lived through all I had and been through all I had I can now better understand the veterans I'm photographing without having that experience I would just be another schmo off the street and who who would want to share their story with somebody who wouldn't understand for me what I thought was, as a combat photographer, that was what I thought my life was. I thought that's what defined me. But instead, that was just a stepping stone to who I was always meant to be and what I was always called to do. And that's the project.
0: Well, I can't think of a better uh, way to kind of put a bow on this thing. Um, you know, I, I hope you're in a better place now. I, I, I hope um, that there are more better days than bad days that you've had. Um, since your time and everything that you've been through. But what an incredible story. Um, Continue the Veterans Project, the Portrait Project, because uh, any way you can help out veterans is obviously um, uh, much needed. And and I I am sure that the people, as you just talked about, on the other side of the camera are are thanking you uh, daily and routinely uh, for what you're doing for them. And, you know, I'm blown away by your story and your honesty and your candor. And certainly um, we thank you so much for being part of the Hazard Ground.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Any final thoughts, Stacey? Any kind of final message you want to leave everybody with?
1: Absolutely. I want you all to know that um, if you need help, ask for it. And help comes in a number of different forms. So if it's just talking to someone like me or if it's getting a service dog, I have a service dog by the name of Charlie, and um, he's been a wonderful addition to my life. And um, if you need to talk to somebody, don't be afraid to do it. There's nothing wrong with, um, with getting help. We want you here.
0: Beautifully said. Stacey Pearsall, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.